You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Today is Thursday, the 12th of November, which means the new Xbox and the new PlayStation consoles are officially out. So that means there's another contested election that people are gonna be fighting over for the next five years. I can't handle this stress. Anyway, coming up on tonight's show, what you can learn from Africa. The Donald went down to Georgia and Megan Rapino and Forrest Whitaker are our guests on the show. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Let's talk about coronavirus. You know, it's the thing you are pretty sure you had in February, but actually didn't. The world is now deep into the second wave of this pandemic, or maybe the third wave, or the fourth. I don't know. At this point, COVID has so many waves, it's like those pools at the amusement park, which are also big spreaders of exotic disease. And after doing a little better over the past few months, unfortunately, the U.S. shows no signs of getting out of the pool. The new explosion of cases in the coronavirus crisis, if you heard this, the U.S. reported a record-shattering number of new infections. For the first time, all 50 states reported increase in cases. Shocking seven-day averages in Kansas at 41%, Iowa at 48%, South Dakota at a astonishing 54%. New restrictions are about to go into effect in New York State. Beginning tomorrow, all bars and restaurants must close for dining at 10 p.m. Gyms must also close at 10 p.m. And all private gatherings must be limited to 10 people or less. A passenger on board the first cruise to set sail in the Caribbean since March reportedly testing positive for the coronavirus. All passengers were tested before boarding, but on Tuesday, one felt sick and tested positive. All guests are now quarantining in their rooms. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Why are they having cruises during a pandemic? But I actually think that there should be more cruises. In fact, I think there should be free cruises for anyone who wants one because those are the people who love spreading the virus. It's better to just get them all on boats and put them safely in the middle of the ocean and then leave them there for six months. If Corona doesn't get them, the buffet will. Good riddance, Joe! And best believe there are a lot of people who are gonna pretend to be angry that gyms are closed, but really deep down inside, they're happy because people love having a reason to not work out. I mean, not me. Like yesterday, I was planning to work out, but then I had to cancel because I think I like got a cramp in my earlobe. I just don't wanna risk it. But to put it all in perspective, in some states, the coronavirus positivity rate is around 50% right now. So if you live in South Dakota or Iowa, look at the person to your left. Now look at the person to your right. Why are you sitting between two people? You're gonna get coronavirus. So yes, coronavirus is getting worse and worse as the winter months arrive. And with things spiraling out of control just in time for the holidays, the CDC has issued new guidelines for how families can have a safe Thanksgiving, to which some families are saying, mind your own goddamn business. 
Experts say half of all Americans plan to travel for the holiday, going against those new CDC guidelines, which recommend celebrating Thanksgiving virtually or only with people in your own household and preferably outside. For indoor dinners, the CDC says keep the windows open, spread out as much as possible, and wear masks. How about Christmas? What are we going to do for Christmas now? We lost the summer, now we're going to lose Thanksgiving. I mean, we, you know, you and I are both Italian, telling Italians not to get together on the holidays is pretty tough. Honestly, I know it seems irresponsible, but I think it is great for people to gather during a pandemic to celebrate Thanksgiving. Yeah, because isn't that what Thanksgiving is all about? Spreading a disease that wipes out a continent? I'm actually surprised Republicans still want Thanksgiving this year. I mean, after Joe Biden won, can you imagine what Thanksgiving is gonna be like? Their millennial nieces and nephews are gonna be showing up like they own the place. He's gonna be walking around like, damn, these mashed potatoes are disappearing faster than your Second Amendment rights, Uncle Steve. Ha <laughs> ha! Now, while things are particularly bad in the US, I do think it's important to remember that this is a global pandemic. It's not from the Democrats, it's not from the, it's global. Right now, Europe is also seeing a giant spike. Although over there, it's not circumcised. The whole world is going through this, people. But it turns out there is one place where they do seem to manage the virus better. And that place might surprise you because you're racist. When COVID-19 was just starting to sweep the globe, experts predicted Africa would be devastated with millions of lives lost. But six months later, the continent seems to be doing much better than anticipated. The World Health Organization says Africa is leading the world in its overall response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The United States is a country of, uh, of about three, what, 326 million people, right? We have 228,000 people dead. The entire continent of Africa, they have only had 41,000 deaths. Experts cannot explain this. They're baffled as well why the number of cases cumulatively uh, has remained so low compared to the rest of the world. Yes, many people never expected that Africa of all places would be able to handle COVID-19. Cause you see them now, they're all like, how is Africa so successful at this? I mean, I could understand if, if this was a marathon or carrying stuff on your head contest, but this is a deadly disease. How are they doing it? And first off, that attitude is offensive. And secondly, hell yeah, we'd win a carrying stuff on your head contest. I've always said that it's racist, that that's not an Olympic sport. White people get to come and shake a ribbon and they win a medal. How come we can't balance buckets and get gold, huh? I mean, with how well Africa's been doing, maybe they should be sending their 22-year-olds to America so that they can also help out and also get some of those great pictures for their Instagram. So why has Africa been more successful at controlling a deadly disease? Well, one reason might be that they've had a lot of practice. Experts say some African nations experience with previous viral outbreaks, like the Ebola and Marburg viruses, mean it was already prepared to deal with COVID-19. The ecosystem built for the disease has been actually reused and readapted for COVID. They already have community workers, health workers who are experienced in dealing uh, with pandemics. In South Africa, they went out to the communities door to door, getting people to, to get tested for coronavirus. So they actually went out hunting uh, for the virus. In Liberia's capital, Monrovia, residents are taking matters into their own hands by setting up neighborhood checkpoints to screen the temperature of those who enter, a strategy already used during the Ebola outbreak. You know how people tap elbows to greet now? That was already used in West Africa during the 2014 to 2016 Ebola outbreak. They called it the Ebola then. Yeah, unfortunately, Many Africans have been more prepared for corona 
because they were forced to deal with Ebola. And if you think Corona is bad, whew, Ebola doesn't play around, man. Ebola is like if Corona went to the gym. Actually, Corona does go to the gym. Corona's there, don't go to the gym, don't go to the gym. You see, here's how it works. Using bad experiences to prepare for worse situations, it comes naturally to Africans. Like I do it too, it's in my DNA. Like I prepare for a possible famine by eating at the Cheesecake Factory. So that way my stomach is like, huh, maybe starving wouldn't be so bad. So because Africans know firsthand what a disease can do to people, they didn't take any chances with COVID-19. Most countries had mandatory mask requirements and the country of Lesotho even imposed a nationwide lockdown before they had a single case. Imagine that. Imagine that, before they had a case. It reminds me of how my mom would sometimes beat my ass before I did something wrong. But mom, I haven't done anything. This is for something you were thinking of doing. <laughs> the worst part is it's true, I was gonna do it. So African nations were able to build on their experience fighting other outbreaks. But that's not the only thing that's working in their favor. It actually seems like the African people themselves have a lot of built-in advantages. One reason experts give for the low death rate is the continent's young population. About 50% of the people living in Africa are in their teens. In addition, about 40% of those young people, we estimate, had asymptomatic infection. And that might be because they've been exposed to other coronaviruses that cause the common cold earlier on. A key, they believe, the lower burden of so-called diseases of lifestyle, like obesity and hypertension. Both, they believe, could lessen the severity of the disease. There is another more unusual hypothesis. Some scientists believe parasitic worms could be protecting some Africans from the full effects of COVID-19. Okay, wow, that's pretty weird. One theory says that Africans have parasitic worms which protect them from coronavirus? Like all Africans? I guess I should thank you, Mr. Riggles. You were looking out for me. You're welcome, Trevor. How about we get some pizza for dinner tonight? You bet, buddy. <laughs> He's slowly killing me, but yeah. One of the more intuitive reasons for Africa's success is that as a continent, the people are younger and in better shape than in other places, which helps in surviving Corona. Plus, Africans get that secret vaccine that they developed in Wakanda. So Africa as a whole is doing better than most of the world when it comes to managing COVID-19. But don't forget, luck and circumstance aside, most of Africa's success has come down to leadership. Many African countries have leaders who have taken this disease seriously from the start. And because of that, the people have also taken it seriously. And here's how you know leadership makes a big difference. Because some countries have leaders who are a lot like Trump. And just like Trump, those African countries are not doing well. While many countries are being praised for their approach to controlling the spread of COVID-19, Tanzania is an exception. The president, John Magufuli, has been really in recent weeks downplaying the risk of COVID-19, telling people not to wear masks. There's been very little social distancing. Tanzania's president has said the country has been healed of coronavirus through prayer. It is an almighty claim and difficult to challenge because his government hasn't released any data for weeks. He has been skeptical of the virus and has echoed conspiracy theories. 
On live television, he told the nation that the country's national laboratory had inflated coronavirus numbers. He even sent samples of fruit to be tested for the virus as a way to expose false positives. Wow. I mean, say what you want about Trump, but at least he's not clogging up the laboratories with fruit samples. I mean, mostly because he doesn't know what a fruit is, but still. Also, can you imagine if that fruit tested positive for coronavirus? I mean, it would be calling up all the other fruit that it was next to in the fruit salad. Hi, blueberries. It's me, Mango. Yeah, I just tested positive for COVID, so you may want to isolate. Oh, and by the way, could you tell Melon for me? Things have been weird for us ever since I told him that he's just in the salad to fill it up, which is totally true, but whatever. Okay, bye. So look, Tanzanian Trump aside, Africa has been much less of a nightmare as it has been on other continents. But please understand, I'm not saying this to brag or anything. Like, I'm not like, ah, Africans are better. No, I'm saying it because this is good news for the rest of the world. It shows that if you take precautions and you use common sense, you can limit the spread and the harm of coronavirus. So please, this is the one time it's okay to take something Africans came up with and claim it as your own. All right, we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, we look at why Georgia is on everybody's mind. And then Megan Rapino and Forrest Whitaker are still coming up on the show. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Let's talk about the United States Senate. It's like a retirement home that can take away your healthcare. With the election day results coming in, the Senate is now divided almost exactly in half between Democrats and Republicans. But there are actually two Senate elections in Georgia that weren't decided last week. And those are the ones that'll determine which party wins this tug of war. Turning to Georgia, where the balance of power in the Senate will be decided just a couple of months from now. The Peach State will hold a pair of runoff elections in January after neither race landed a winner with at least 50% of the vote. The two Senate runoffs in the state, scheduled for January 5th, will now determine the fate of the Senate and how much legislation Mr. Biden is able to get passed next year. Both parties will be pouring tens of millions of dollars into the contests. Every Republican of national profile will be heading down to Georgia, as will some prominent Democrats. You know, I think it's interesting, Brett, the scuttlebutt is that Democrats would rather Biden stay away and Obama go. Damn. Democrats want Obama to come down instead of Joe Biden. Man, once you go Barack, you never go back. And poor Joe Biden. I mean, he's president-elect. But Democrats are all still like, Obama! Everybody, uh, let's get a Democratic Senate for Joe. Oh, who the hell is Joe? Obama! But yes, both parties are descending on Georgia for these two Senate races. And if you live in Georgia, can I just say, I am so sorry for what is about to happen in your life. You thought the texts and TV ads were bad before? Whew, nah, man. RIP to your doorbell because that shit is getting rung 50 times a minute. Volunteers are gonna be popping up in your dreams. Hi, sorry to interrupt your weird unicorn sex dream. Can we count on you on January 5th? In fact, there's gonna be so many TV ads. Now is the perfect time to cut the cord and cancel your cable. Wait, not right now, not right now. After the show, after the show. Whew, yeah, that's better. That was close. Don't do that again. Now, one reason that both parties think that they both have a shot in the Georgia Senate runoffs is that the presidential race there was surprisingly tight. Joe Biden did come out slightly ahead, but it's too close for comfort. 
The White House remains focused on the election tonight, winning a hand recount in Georgia as it pushes other legal challenges that will likely have little bearing on the results. The election is over, but the counting is not tonight, with every ballot in Battleground Georgia set to be recounted by hand. Typically, recounts only change a race's margin by a few hundred votes or so, so it's very unlikely President Trump could overtake President-elect Biden's 14,000 vote lead in Georgia. But the Trump campaign today Day calls the recount a first step toward winning their legal fights despite no evidence of widespread voter fraud. That's right. Trump is getting a hand recount of every Georgia ballot. There's millions of them. Hand recount. And I don't think that's going to be fun for him because, I mean, it's bad enough losing Georgia by 14,000 votes, but now imagine having to hear them one by one. It's also strange how election recounts are the one time where people think counting by hand is better than by machine. There's never any other situation where we say, okay, that's what the calculator says, but just to double check, five, six, 11, 13, uh, 25 would carry the one. All right, yeah, I think the spaceship has enough fuel. You guys can take off. I also feel like counting each ballot by hand is gonna take forever. Not just because of the numbers, but because it's Georgia. Have you ever been to Georgia? Those people are not in a rush. One vote, two votes. Three votes. You gonna bring me some of that peach tea? What they need to do is they need to go and hire Atlanta's trap rappers to do the counting for them. One and a six and a thousand and five and a whoop and a million is done and again and a whoop and a million is gonna miss in and a kind of a bit and a bad and a million and a win. But as you heard, it's unlikely that Trump will actually find enough miscounted ballots to flip the results in Georgia. But even if he does, he still won't have enough electoral votes to change the overall results. And while Biden would really like to get up to speed for his whole new big job that he's got coming up, Trump refuses to lift a finger to help him. Developing overnight, State Department officials tell CNN that the Trump administration is preventing President-elect Biden from accessing messages from foreign leaders. They're calling the State Department. They're not giving the president-elect these messages. Traditionally, the State Department Operations Center sets up phone calls for the president-elect with world leaders. They provide translation. That is not happening right now. So just to be really clear about what is happening, it means world leaders who believe that they should be reaching out to the State Department to get in touch with the president-elect are doing so, but their messages are not being responded to. They're not being received by president-elect Joe Biden. Essentially, he has a mailbox full of messages here at the State Department that he cannot access. Okay, this is a big problem. Because by the time he gets around to listening to those messages, they'll be months old. This is gonna be like world leaders leaving crucial information that nobody heard. Hello, this is Vladimir Putin. You will do what I demand or we are launching missiles in three days. Is Putin again? Missiles now two days away. Joe, why are you ghosting me? Is it something I said? You know, at this rate, Joe Biden is gonna spend his first month just sifting through all this mail. And it's gonna be a waste of time because you know how much of mail is just junk mail. Uh, L.L. Bean catalog, Blue Apron catalog, another catalog. Oh, here's, here's a letter from Angela Merkel. Oh, <laughs> dear Joe, use my friend coupon to subscribe to Blue Apron, damn it! Another one, she tricked me. The real question is, why? Why won't Trump just acknowledge that he lost? Why is he out there every day tweeting bogus videos and spreading conspiracy theories about election fraud? Why? Is it because of his fragile ego? Huh? Is it because he wants to take the country down with him? 
I mean, it could be those things, but it could also be about the Benjamins. President Trump is refusing to concede, vowing to forge ahead with a legal fight to contest the election. The campaign has launched an official election defense fund. They're calling it the, quote, official election defense fund. Scroll down to the fine print at the bottom of the page, and it shows if you donate, 60% will go towards paying down campaign debts. Campaign finance attorneys say the money is going toward a new political action committee the president founded called Save America. That money is a slush fund that could go directly to the president. This type of fund has fewer restrictions on how the money is spent and can be used to pay for personal expenses. My man, Donald Jobless Trump. This guy never misses a hustle. I bet as we speak, he's ripping out the copper wiring from the White House walls. Keep pulling, Jared. I know a guy who'll give us 35 cents a foot for this stuff. But that's what's happening. And I mean, for anyone with brains, it looks like Donald Trump is scamming people out of their money by saying that his country wrongly kicked him out of power. And I guess I owe Donald Trump an apology because I honestly thought he could never change, but he has. The dude went from being an African dictator to a Nigerian prince. When we come back, I'll be joined by the American soccer superstar, Megan Rapinoe. And then I'll be talking with the mediocre soccer player, Forrest Whitaker. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Megan Rapinoe, a two-time World Cup champion and Olympic gold medalist. She opened up about her activism, her success on the soccer field, and so much more. Megan Rapino, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Uh, I'm a big fan. I'm very excited to be here. This is exciting. I am a bigger fan now that I see uh, what you're wearing because as a as a fan of hoodies, I uh, I am partial to the hoodie game. That's that's a pretty dope hoodie. I like that. Yeah, it's a good one. Chinatown Market. It's you know nice and colorful. It's comfy. I'm probably sweating underneath, but you can't tell, <laughs> so it's fine. That's what makes hoodies the best. No one knows what's happening underneath. What matters is what you look like. That's all that matters. Welcome to the show. And before we get into it, congratulations on your recent engagements. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're, we're both very excited. You're engaged to somebody now who has a list of achievements that could only be matched by yours. So on your side, you have won two World Cups, an Olympic gold medal, one Ballon d'Or, Sue, on her side, has won four WNBA titles, four Olympic gold medals, and four FIBA World Cups. Question is, in the IKEA, like, bookshelf, who gets to put the trophies where? Is there, like, a, like, is there, like, priority? Even my mom, when we first got together, she's like, I Googled Sue, and, like, you're really not that impressive anymore. And I'm like, <laughs> I know! This is crazy! Um... Uh, it's probably be like percentage. So I'll like have, you know, my little sliver of like 20% and then like Sue's going to take up the rest of the, the oh, show. I like that. There's, there's no lie that there has been uh, pay disparity between people of different genders and different races, you know? In sports, it's really interesting because, you know, people always go like, oh, well, I mean, it's about income and it's about revenue. People don't go to the games as much, the women's games. That's why they don't get paid as much. It's not us. It's the fans who are not going how do you handle that dispute and, and, and how do you try and educate, um, you know, onlookers who are just going like, well, Megan, I don't know who's right and who's wrong in this thing. I mean, I, I understand what these owners are saying, but I understand what you are saying. How, how do you handle that side of the argument to win people over? I think when in sports, we often go to like, what's your salary and how many people are watching you or how many people in the stadium. But it really starts a lot before that. You have to think of it 
like a business that needs to be invested in. And, you know, if the NBA is getting a billion dollars of investment, the WNBA is getting, you know, even a hundred million dollars of investment, like one business is going to be more successful. If you spend more on your marketing person and your branding person and your ticket and your CEO and you have all these people, like the business is going to run better. So by the time we get to the game, we've been so uh, under invested in or at such a, at such a disadvantage the whole time, like. It's shocking that we have as much success as we do or we're as popular as we do, uh, as we are. I think it's like, let's understand the entire picture before we just go to the very last stage and be like, well, see, no one wants to come. I also love that your fight has inspired other women. And, and you talk about this in, in, in your book and you, you know, you share the story. Your aunt told you that she fought for her pay when she saw you fighting for yours. What was that like? And what, like, what did she do in her world that changed everything? To, to know that like she found herself in our fight. Um, yeah, it, it made me really emotional. It was a really touching moment. And I think that's a, probably the most rewarding and, and the most important part out of our team's fight with the Federation and the lawsuits and the equal pay fight is like, yeah, of course we're doing it on our behalf, but still in the grand scheme, like we're so privileged. We still make a lot of money. We're still like superstars of some, some kind, but for so many women out there, like it's my aunt in, in her job, it's, you know, a, a domestic worker or it's a restaurant worker. It's like, it's so right. difficult to do these things. Even in our position, it's difficult. So to know that we've inspired or at least made people think, you know, down to um, every single level is like, that's the, the biggest win I think that we could have. The title of your newly released memoir is One Life, which I think is very misleading because I feel like you've lived many lives. You share so many inspiring, heartfelt and painful experiences from your journey, you know? Um, I mean, just some of the stories that stick out for me is, you know, the moment when you realize that your dad is a Trump supporter and yourself and your twin sister, who are both gay, say, hey, this, this breaks our hearts and, and you, you have to deal with that with somebody that you love. Do you have any tips or tricks on how to mend the wounds between family members who've been ripped apart because of politics? Mm-hmm. I just try to, to keep talking. I, I still like, obviously have this relationship. I love him and while it's, it's painful, of course, um, and it was painful to know that, you know, he would have voted for someone like that and, and supported him for a lot of years. Um, I don't think he voted for him this year, which, which I'm thankful for. Um, but it's like, we can't just not talk to each other. I mean, it's, it's obviously a tough time for everyone right now, knowing it's that, what, 71 million people or something voted for someone who's just spewed hatred and chaos and disaster. And we have you know, approaching 250,000 people dead from COVID and all of these things to, to know that someone supports that, but like that clearly there's much more to it that, um, I think we need to dig into and have more conversation with just as family, as friends, as a nation, as everybody. I thank you for sharing. Um, your book truly, truly, truly is something that I think everybody should read. They're going to love you even more. You're going to be, um, you're going to have even more fans and you're probably gonna have to build like an extra trophy cabinet because of all the awards the book is probably gonna win as well. So tell Sue to make some space for those extra trophies and uh, congrats on the hoodie. Thank you so much for joining me, Megan. I appreciate you. Thank you. Megan's memoir, One Life, is available now. You definitely wanna get it. When we come back, acting legend Forrest Whitaker is joining us on the show. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Oscar-winning actor, producer, and director, 
Forrest Whitaker. We talked about his legendary career and his brand new holiday film. Forrest Whitaker, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. It's great to be with you, Trevor. Great. You have one of the most illustrious careers that anyone could ever, ever, ever dream of. I mean, everything from Star Wars to, to Black Panther to Platoon, everyone has a favorite movie, and that favorite movie probably has Forrest Whitaker in it. I, I wonder, before we get into this and talking about your new movie, do you have a favorite movie? That I've done. Like your movie that, that you've done, yeah. Is, do you have your favorite movie where you go like, ah, oh, that's, that's my favorite movie? Different reasons, you know. I mean, I, I did like when I worked on the Last King of Scotland. I mean, it was just a full performance for me. It was like I was able to express myself as fully as I can as an artist, and that was great. Other times, it's uh, I don't know, some of the magic you might get in a Black Panther, or or some of the history you might get in like the Butler. They're all different, you know. I'm right. Lucky, you know? I feel like we're lucky. I feel like we're lucky because we get to, we get, I'm like, like, like now when you said Last King of Scotland, the first thing I thought of immediately was, but you didn't convince me. You know what I mean? Like just like some of those lines and the way you live in these characters. I, I, I sometimes wonder, are you able to just let the character go once you've lived in them for so long or do they live with you for a little bit after the project? Well, sometimes it takes a while to get rid of a character. It takes a while to shake it off. It's you kind of like been doing that 24 seven for months at a time. And- the rhythms and stuff stick with you and you you have to fight to like wash them off or clean them off or right. you need to do it. And, and then actually, you know what, Trevor, I think uh, sometimes you carry a little piece of that person. Like it's like as if you've been reincarnated again and you're another and, and you carry with you the way you say a line that came back from another life or the way you like understand how to like sometimes I might be working on a car engine. I don't I'm not a car person really, but all of a sudden I know how to fix everything. And it's only because of some part I played as a mechanic. That's or something. hilarious. That's amazing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's actually amazing. I feel like you should take more roles that just teach you things that help you around the house, just so you can like, fix. <laughs> I need, I need a role fixing fridges, people. Um, before we get into Jingle Jangle, I, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about about Black Panther. You know, I, I, I know chatting to Ryan and, and Lupita and everyone who was part of the team that you know the cast. It was like a family. You know, you were doing something so special. You were creating something that I mean reverberated around the world as a South African. I still love the film because of how you portrayed my people, my country, my world. Africans loved it. Americans, everyone loved it because of the story behind the story. When Chadwick passed, I know that that just shook everyone. You know, you were somebody who connected with every young actor in such a special way. What did, what did he mean to you as a human being, not just as an actor? I mean, I think... For people, he acted as a beacon in a way of like being able to fulfill your hopes and dreams, to be able to uh, reach the highest heights and uh, to be able to contribute and give back, you know, not just with love, but with understanding. I think uh, that's a, a great gift that he was able to to give out to the world. And and um, I think he still does that in, in, in a way in the sense that he allows us to believe in the possible, you know? That, yeah. He like rose to do certain great certain great things and revealed, as you say, more things about his culture and about uh, his connections and, and about his spirit and and revealed this in many different ways with many different parts that he played and stuff. Uh, he was he was revealing different histories and different understandings about different people and shining lights on those different things. And so I guess I just admired that he did that and I and I felt uh, he was um it was in a, it was a treasure in that way. That he gave so many gifts of his work and himself. You know? 
I, I loved how he lived his life. Um, I also like how you do that. I like how Forrest Whitaker seamlessly moves between emotions, you know? Maybe it seems seamless on the outside, but like, you, you've, you've acted in some of the most powerful movies in roles that have shaped how we even see ourselves in the world. Jingle Jangle is a departure. I feel like it's the perfect movie for this time. It's a Christmas musical. It, it, it has joy. It has a light spirit. Tell me a little bit about this project and why you were drawn to it. Well, I mean, I did like the themes, which were, you know, really powerful, which was all in your life and in your family. You can, you can find yourself again. You can rise back up to be able to succeed and have life again and find joy. And that was really great. And I think um, when uh, David, the director, uh, he had this vision for this film and he asked me to do it. And I, and I thought this would be a beautiful gift in, to the world and also one for me to get a chance to live in this kind of energy, this kind of positive feeling and thought and laughter. It was, it was every day on the set, it was like really full of people like, uh, like enjoying themselves and doing everything they could. So in the littlest corner of the stage, they'd be writing a little phrase or something because people really cared so much. It was, it was uh, one of those amazing experiences. And the director, David, you know, he, he had been trying to get the movie made for like 20 years, so. Right, right. Um, but like sometimes we just explaining the scene and being the, caught up in the set and all of a sudden just start weeping, tears coming down his face. And, and the, <laughs> the people there just like just caught with him, you know, because it, it meant so much. And so it became, it, it meant something to us, you know, uh, right. as a film. And, and I think that you can see that joy in the movie. The movie is full of joy and hope and possibilities. And, and I think it's necessary right now. I think it's it's good for people right now because... People have been feeling beat down by the pandemic, beat down by racial injustices, beat down by society sometimes as a whole. And and to have a film like this, I think that just tries to lift you up and like make you believe that you know, yes, you can fall, but you can come back. You can you can you can rise back up and you can find your joy again. You know, and uh, I think the movie does that, and it's fun. It's funny. It's uh, it's wild. You know, it's it's it's, it's a lot of different things. So it's full of joy. It's full of fun. It's a, it's, a, it's a place of hope, and um, I, re I really had a great time watching it. So thank you so much uh, for joining me on the show. Uh, I know that you're very busy. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for everything that you've done in the roles that you've played, in the way that you've played it, and uh, uh, thank you so much for being here. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you, man. Huge really fan. Take care. Don't forget, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey will be available on Netflix November 13th. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go... Remember that Thanksgiving is coming up. And in the era of Corona, there are a lot of seniors who are homebound who are at greater risk than ever before because they don't know where their next meal is coming from. Luckily, Meals on Wheels is out in the streets delivering meals to elderly Americans every single day to help keep them safe and nourished in communities around the country. Until next week, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and remember, if you don't have Corona, don't forget to thank your tapeworm. So adorable. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.